0: Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. As we continue our study in the book of 1 John, um, having looked last week at these various levels of maturity that we might find ourselves in as children of God, that we are children, but what uh, phase of of growth are we in? Are we still infants? Are we still those that are young men? are we those that are called fathers? And that's what we studied last week uh, from verses 12 through 14. This morning we're going to look at three verses, and that's 15 through 17. So hopefully you have made your way there. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Wes, would you open us up, please? Amen. Thank you. I've heard it said by some other commentators, and also I I think others have used this analogy when it comes to the writings of John, is that he paints with his words. And we understand also that the Holy Spirit is the one who writes the Scriptures through these faithful men, but there's still the impression of that human writer that comes through. There's still the style that they use. And John gives us this very ugly picture of sin, And that, you could say, is the backdrop of what he paints. It's a black backdrop of our sin. And by doing this, then the beauty of God is illuminated all the brighter as it stands out in such stark contrast to our sin, to our depravity, to what John describes as the darkness. That's that black backdrop on the canvas that he's writing on. And as we've mentioned before, John gives some very clear black and white examples, easy for us to understand. He illustrates the dark ugliness of our sin, the condition of our fallen nature, and then he contrasts that against the pure beauty of God's love and forgiveness and what he has done for us, and that shines forth from the scriptures. It almost radiates from his writing. You can see this brilliancy of God and who he is and what he has done for us. And there are some very clear and simple questions, I think, that surface for us in this letter. And for today, I'd like us to consider these things. The first one is, is your heart aligned with God's heart? Is your heart aligned with God's heart? What is your heart seeking after? Do you love what God loves? And do you hate what God hates? There's the four questions we're going to get into that just a little bit more, and I hope that by the end of this teaching that we have those answers pretty clear in our minds, not because of my words and me trying to influence you and how you respond to these questions, but because the (laughs) Word of God as it comes to bear on our minds and exposes the true condition of our heart, that this is what we need to use to evaluate our response to these questions. Is our heart aligned with God And what is our heart seeking after? Do we love the things that God loves and do we hate what God hates? So let's go to verse 15 one more time and let's look at that again as we unpack it together. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. And I'm just gonna stop right there with the first half of verse 15. Um, He starts this off with not throwing it out there as a suggestion for us. You know, consider not loving the things of the world. But he he forces, it's a forceful command here. He's saying, do not. Do not love the things of the world. And you can't really be any clearer than do not. You know, when my dad told me, do not do something I knew, that what was about to follow the do not was something that could have some pretty serious implications for my life and also some pretty severe repercussions as far as my punishment was concerned. So you better be sure that that I listened to his instruction and I was so much better off if I heeded that instruction. And so John is telling us that we are to not, do not love the world or the things in the world. And the word world, in Scripture can have a number of different meanings, and a lot of it depends on the context of it. So we're going to look at the Greek word of this, and remember that context is our key to understanding Scripture. So if you can't understand a single verse, you go back to verses before and afterwards, and then even the the context of how it uh, is structured with chapters in before and after, and, and the entire book, and even as it's situated within the entire Bible. Um, so this Greek word is cosmos, and it can be used to describe the universe as a whole, so not just this planet Earth or this globe, but just the universe in general. Um, it can use to, be used to describe this planet. It can be used to describe mankind in the general sense, and that's probably how it's uh, most quoted in the Bible, Um, but in the book of John, we find probably the most famous use of the word in John 3.16, and this means mankind in the general sense, when we see, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, where world is used or cosmos is used there, it means mankind in the general sense. We're not going to look at all the ways that cosmos is used in the scriptures, but the word can also be used to describe fallen humanity. And going back to John's writing, I don't know if you turn to John 3.16, you go ahead to John 17.9, and this is the Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus praying to the Father. And in chapter 17, verse 9 of John, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So he's making the contrast between the ones that God has given him, those who are, are saved, who are called to him, with those who are of the world, meaning the rest of fallen humanity. So that's the use of cosmos there in context. In First John it is used similarly in that it refers to the evil world system over which Satan presides as its governing force, the governing force of fallen humanity, really is our enemy, our adversary, uh, Satan. And you can be assured that the enemy is the power behind the scenes, but he gets a lot of help from us in our fallen nature. And look at Ephesians 6 with me, and we're going to go to verse 12, Ephesians 6 verse 12. And this is the chapter known probably mostly for the full armor of God that Paul tells us as believers we are to take on and put on the full armor of God. It's the way that we uh, wage the battle that, or fight the battle that is being waged around us. And he describes the battle that we are engaged in, and that's what I want us to look at. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when we look at that word world or cosmos that John describes here, I think going to Paul's telling us what is behind this evil world system, these are the things that we are looking at here in First John. It's those not flesh and blood, it's that rulers, it's the principalities, the authorities, cosmic powers of our present darkness and spiritual forces of evil that is part of this world system. That's what's behind it, the things that we can't see. An invisible world system that is corrupted, it is evil, it is full of lies and deceit and has as its father the enemy of our souls, Satan And you don't have to look very far to see that this force is breaking through in society. And it's not hiding itself away somewhere. It is very clear and in front of us, even though it can be very deceptive as well, because that's how the enemy works. And we can see it in various aspects of media and entertainment We can see it in music and in our education system and politics and just the list goes on and on and on. And we could sit here all day and list the ways that we see it breaking through this spiritual force of evil. And I'm not saying that it is all evil, but there is the infrastructure of a system that is very much anti-God. It's very much anti-Christ, very much anti-family and anti christian And we can be sure that this world, this cosmos as it is used here, does not stand in the light of God. If John is telling us there's light and there's darkness, this world that we're talking about here is in darkness. This is nothing to do with light, except in contrast. So this world will attempt to mute and distort the truth of God. And we don't have to look very far to see that it is, in a sense, taking over. This uh, To the degree that we are being told that good is evil and evil is good, like flipping things in reverse, things that were part of common morality that many of us may have grew up in, it's just like even that has now turned on its head and now we're being told that the things that we profess as good are not good. We're not being tolerant. We are being evil because we're trying to speak out against these things And trying to do it in a loving way, because we love people, we don't want them to perish into eternity without knowing the love of God, that we're the ones that are told that we're being evil in doing so, and maybe even that we're being hateful in our speech. I got out of my notes a little bit, so let me find my way back here. Um, So the things that come to our minds probably vary in terms of what we think are the evils that have saturated our culture or our world. And there's the, like, the big two or three that most people go to as soon as you think of, of worldly sins or the things that this world is corrupted with. You might hear things like you know homosexuality, that's, that's the evil of this age, or maybe they'll say something like abortion. Um, there's lies and there's corruption. And, and truth be told, that even religion can be corrupt. I mean, isn't it religion that really crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? And we have religion today that will pull you further apart from God, I think, than not knowing any religion at all. So we need to be careful in what we categorize as the evil influences in this world and what is used as evil influences and not keep it at these main ones that are just kind of at prominence today. Be aware of those, but also be aware it can, it can go into lies and deception and even into our religion, even into our churches. And we can be sure that uh, this world will attempt to distort what God says in his word. And so we are told not to love the world, not to love its ideologies. I'm talking about the spiritual forces behind it or the forces behind it that Paul writes about in Ephesians 6.12. But secondly, John writes that we are not to love the things of this world. Do not love this world and do not love the things of this world. And we could make a list here as well and check it twice, right? That's the time of year that we're in. <laughs> and we would still not have all of these things covered. You know, if I were to take an inventory of the own, my own things, <laughs> it could probably take up a pretty big chapter in a book. But when looking at this, we should be asking ourselves if these things have become more important to us than God. Things like our material possessions, so what I believe that John is referring to here. What do we have? I mean, we all have like vehicles to drive around. Um, we have houses. We have clothes. We sometimes make a lot of importance about food. Hopefully not too much today, but I'm going I'm to check all of you on that. <laughs> How much value do we place on those worldly possessions? I mean, there's, there's a number of them. But we could also include the worldly pursuits that we have or the worldly ambitions. That could be categorized as the things that John is talking about here. And the first things that come to mind is, what about our jobs? You know, that's a pursuit or a passion. Um, Our careers, Uh, what about our education, Uh, our politics, maybe just even our health in general and how much emphasis that we put upon those things. Are any of these things more important than loving God. And we are told by Jesus in Mark chapter twelve, verse thirty, says, our, he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Not the things of this world and not this world system, but we are to keep at the center our love of God. What is drawing you away from that love of God, well, that's these things that we are tempted by—the draws and the attractions of the world—and we sometimes think that an idol is just a statue that can be formed out of metal or wood or, or clay or something that's man-made. But what becomes an idol to you is that that you serve more than God or even that you fear more than God, because in fearing something, you're really indeed serving it and almost could be qualified, classified as worshiping that thing. It doesn't have to be, like I said, a carved image. It can be anything that pulls you away from the supreme love that we should possess for God. In A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, Um, And remember, this isn't scripture. It's it's one of my favorite books um, outside of scripture, and I've read through it several times. And I remember seeing a prayer in there as I was going through this study, and it was found after a chapter that he called, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And this is honest prayer that he writes right at the end of this very, very challenging chapter. He says, Father, I want to know thee, but my cowardly heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self, so that thou mayest enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shalt thou make the place of thy feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for thyself wilt be the light of it and there shall be no night there. Keep in mind, this is just man's words and not Scripture, but you can see the sincerity of this prayer, and I kind of sense this when I go through and think about the things of the world, is it creating a rival in my heart for where God should be. And Paul, I think we can look to Scripture to see what what he would say uh, when he evaluates the things of the world compared to that surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord, in Philippians 3, 8-9, he says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You know, our faith and our obedience to God should be that that inspires our allegiance to Him, that inspires our loyalty to Him, and yet our challenge is to still be in this world and yet not love the things of this world, not put them in a place of prominence in the throne room of our heart, if you will. And if, as John's saying, though, that we cannot possess anything, that now after you've heard this message that you've got to go sell off everything, uh, you have to quit your job, that you have to leave your family and home and live a life of self-induced poverty just to show that you are devoted to God and that you love Him. And this is not what John is saying. What, what, what I question here is what is our perspective of these things? And that's a question I have for myself how do I view them? What is the lens through which I look at my possessions or my passions and pursuits and the way I view the worldly system that is all around me? Because you can have the things in this world, just don't let the things of this world have you. You can have the things of the world, don't let the things of this world have you. Most of us go to work right, to provide for our families and I think that's a good thing. That's valuable. We're not supposed to be lazy. We're supposed to work with our hands. We're supposed to be good stewards with what we have. Um, And having a workplace is a good thing, an office to go to. But that office should not be your worship center. That job should not be your your sanctuary where you go to worship it instead of God. God has given us things that we're able to enjoy so long as we keep them in the right perspective. But if your life revolves around something like work, um, entertainment, hobbies, or even revolves around a person, and that's a hard one right there, revolves around a person, um, then it probably means that we have a misdirected passion and devotion to something that must be reserved for God. We should not be held in the grip of worldly things. So if we are not to love the things of the world, who are we to love? And I think that is implied here when we read that we're not supposed to love the things of the world or the things in the world, but yet we are to love God. The inverse or the reverse is implied here. To not love and serve the world and the things of the world is to love the one who is the creator of all things. You know, God is the one that has created it. Why not show gratitude and thankfulness to Him for it? The intensity of devotion that we could direct at anything in this world, we want to direct towards the Creator of all things, the one who saved us, the one who gave His life for us. And if we love God this way, then we should love the things that God loves and hates, The thing hate the things that God hates. And a couple of questions that came up right at the beginning of this is, are we... Loving the things that he loves and hating the things that he hates. God hates this evil world system. He rejects its so-called values because he stands in complete opposition to the world system. If you look at James chapter 4, verse 4, I'll give you a moment to turn there. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Don't cozy up to the things of this world. To make friends with something is to have a, a really strong familiarity such that you want to be around it all the time. And James is telling us here, well, the Holy Spirit through James is saying, don't be friends with it. If you're friends with the world, you cannot be friends with God. You know, we can own a business. We can be Christian and women businessmen, so to say. We can be very successful. We can have many possessions. But we must hold those things with uh, an open hand. You know, Recognizing it is God who is the one who provides these things. He provides our jobs. He provides the provisions that we can use to, to uh, help sustain our families. But living for them or in fear of them being taken away is the competition for affection of God. Our affection should be belong to God exclusively. You don't find this often, but in a USA Today article, um, some of you may know this already, but his name is David Green, and he's the former owner, I'll say former owner, of Hobby Lobby. And he's said to have given up his company because he was choosing God over wealth. Green credited his faith, this is coming directly from the the news source, USA Today, so not scripture here, but Green credited his faith and higher power as the true source of his success, noting that God was the true owner of my business, and felt that passing the company down to his children and grandchildren would have been the wrong move. Green is quoted, as an owner, there are certain rights and responsibilities, including the right to sell the company and keep the profits for yourself and your family. As our company grew, that idea began to bother me more and more. Well-meaning attorneys and accountants advised me to simply pass ownership down to my children and grandchildren. It didn't seem fair to me that I might change or even ruin the future of my grandchildren who had not even been born yet. When I realized that I was just a steward, it was easy to give away my ownership. Now, I don't know Mr. Green's heart, um, only God does, but it would seem that he holds the proper perspective when it comes to wealth. I mean the guy's worth 14 billion dollars and here he's ready to to give up this company realizing he only holds it with an open hand, that he needs to be a good good steward. And I think the word stewardship is a good perspective to have where we are cognizant as believers that the Lord has given and what he has given is entrusted to us for our care and for our use. And it's to be used for his glory. And when the opportunity presents itself, even for the advancement of his kingdom, because we can use our places of business as a ministry. We can share the gospel with others who God surrounds us with in, in our workplaces um, in, in just anywhere that he puts us. So this comes with knowing that it's, it's his anyway. And if he chooses to take it away, then so be it. It can't ruin us. And to even think on that, you know, we think that we might be okay if God goes ahead and takes it from me, but they, they will come, those things will be taken away. And will our faith hold true? my devotion will my devotion to him waver if we look at job and his suffering and what he declared to the lord in job 1:21 through 22 he said naked i came from my mother's womb and naked i shall return the lord gave and the lord has taken away blessed be the name of the lord and in all this job did not sin or charge god with wrong I'm sure most of you here have probably read the book of Job. Um, it's been a while for me, and sometimes I hesitate putting it in as a reference because, you know, w- what am I asking for here to use Job as an example? And I'm not going to stand here and tell you there is no conflict with this and that, that it is easy to do. You no, know, it, it is hard to think about Job and all that he lost. You know, he lost everything. Absolutely everything was taken away from him. All of his possessions, all of his, his family members were killed except for his wife, but may we never be tested to that degree. I mean, I pray that that I would not be tested to that degree, but when faced with having even some of my possessions or even one of my loved ones taken from me, would I stand like him and bless the name of the Lord and not sin? I will not stand here and tell you that, but that's what Scripture tells us. Because John realizes that the conflict within is real, and that is found in the second part of verse 15. Look again at 1 John with me, chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I think by now we've seen that John is really black and white, he's not cryptic in his meaning. Love of this world and the things of this world cannot mutually exist in the same heart at the same time. The lure of the evil world system and cravings after the things cannot be on equal footing with your love and devotion to God. Wes, in his message a couple of weeks ago, uh, used the illustration of being on one side of the fence or on the other side of the fence because the fence still belongs to Satan. Now, that's not Scripture either, but I think it's a, a good analogy for where we like to think we can be sometimes, riding that fence, just kind of seeing how it'll all play out and then you know maybe get there to heaven one day. But no, there is clear distinction between that that is good and that that is evil, that is of God, and that that is of this world or of the enemy. In terms of our standing with God, you know, categorically we can say that there are believers and that there are unbelievers. There's one side of the fence and there's the other side of the fence. There's no kind of riding the fence in between. So categorically, we understand that and I think that scripture is clear on that. Those who profess to be believers in God through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ should be living for God, should be living to do His will. And as a believer, we have His Holy Spirit so we have the capacity to love him like we should, to live our life in devotion to him and serve him with fellow believers. So we have, by his Holy Spirit, that ability, that that capacity to do it. However, his having saved us and given us the gift of his Holy Spirit does not set us on autopilot to never be challenged by the things of this world. In fact, you will likely experience the opposition or the opposite. You know, You'll experience opposition where times of testing will become more frequent, may even become more intense. The enemy would want to challenge that in you. I've observed within myself though a a war, you know, that is being waged within. Cause relatively so categorically, yeah, believers, there's unbelievers, but relatively speaking, a believer can be ensnared and can be lured and can be entrapped by the same things as unbelievers. I have observed that happening, you know, even myself, a competition, you know, between the world system and the things of this world and my love for those things, or what I I probably wouldn't call it my love for those things, but if I'm honest, maybe, you know, maybe that is the case. And then that compared to my devotion to God. And I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have played on a teeter-totter before, maybe it's called a seesaw, you know what that's like? Yeah, it goes up and down, one person sits on one side, one person sits on the other, and if you had older cousins like me, they'd wait till they get on the bottom and then they would jump off and you would slam and hit your rear end on the ground, and, but well, that's a different story, we won't, we're not going to go talk about that, but it's, it's that up and down, you know, when one goes up, the other one is automatically going to go down, and in our life as a believer, If you are elevating the things of the world in your life, then you can be assured that the things of God and doing the will of God is going to do this. It's going to tip in the opposite direction. Right? We can't have them on the same footing, so to speak. What are we feeling and what are we feeding into our lives? Because they can't be on the increase at the same time. And now, that is not Scripture because Jesus nowhere in Scripture uses the parable of the teeter-totter, but this is what uh, Jesus does say in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one And love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What do you find yourself seeking after in the supreme sense? This really calls for an almost continual evaluation of where our affections lie, uh, and use Scripture to guide you in this. Use it as the lens through which we view anything in this world. We should be bringing these things before God in prayer, you know, pray before you make that big purchase. You know, whether it's a, a car or maybe any purchase, <laughs> these days you're spending an awful lot when you go to buy groceries, so maybe we need to be praying about that. We should be praying in all circumstances, but before you make those monumental transitions, if you're buying a car or a house or, or property, the things of the world, being sure that that doesn't become something that you worship, something that you're devoted to. Pray before you make that decision on the next job offer, the next job transition that you're going for. Pray that you, you, pray before you make that next big move from one, one town to another. Pray, 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 and continually bring these things to God and look to His Word to guide you. Because the challenge is that this world is aggressively after us aggressively after us. It is seeking to capture us. It's seeking to control you. It is seeking to corrupt you. And this takes us to verse 16, where John now goes on to tell us about all these things in the world and then specifies what is in the world. Since it is a short passage that we are studying, let's read it all once more. Verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And John does not go into specifics about the possessions that I've been giving a lot of attention to here, but rather he deals with the deadly forces that are in the world. And he breaks them out into three things here. And our adversary the devil is, as Peter puts it, he's using these things to deceive us. But First Peter 5.8, he describes our adversary there as an, uh, the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So yes, this world system is aggressively after us, but who is behind it? It is our adversary. He is the one who's prowling around He's like that roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He wants to overtake us in this world. And the method that he uses have been the same since the fall. All right, we think we have our enemy figured out, but yet how often do we find ourselves falling victim to these deadly forces that are in the world ourselves? The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And he begins with the desires of the flesh, or some translations have the lust of the flesh. I like the use of that word as well. And the Greek word for lust is apithumia. There it is. Apithumia. And it means strong desires. And sometimes this can be in a positive way. We can direct strong desires to something that is positive. First Thessalonians 2.17 says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. So there is that same Greek word, but used in a positive way, the desiring to be face to face with other believers that Paul writes about there. However, it is used more often to describe the craving for sin and that is its use here in verse 16. And one description in commentary put it this way. It is to describe strong desires or cravings that set a hook in you, that set a hook in you. I know most of you have been fishing that, that really and it takes hold in the mind. You understand that it's not just something that pokes into you and comes back out. It pokes into you, it sets a hook in you, it brings you in, it lures you in. So I think that's a, an apt way to describe it. And though the religion of Gnosticism that you know John has been refuting, though this this religion would say that we are not responsible for things done in our flesh since it's inherently evil, and John refutes that, we don't get rid of the flesh. We seek to make it obedient to the Spirit of God within us. The flesh is still there. Scripture tells us that we receive a new heart and that we are born again of the Spirit, but it doesn't mean that. Flesh disappears altogether, but it should not no longer be what dominates us. In Romans 6 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It has been subjected so that it no longer has mastery over us, but rather is under the mastery of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no denying that it is not still a strong force within us and still has its sinful appetites. It still has uh, its sinful desires. Turn to Galatians 5 with me. As Paul observes this in Galatians 5, verse 16, and this is right before he lists out the works of the flesh compared to the fruit of the Spirit. But in Galatians 5, 16, Paul writes, I say, walk by the Spirit, And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul doesn't say anything about the flesh being gone. He says in striving and keeping in step with the Spirit, that is the way that we do not gratify the desires of the flesh. He acknowledges the will of the flesh still inside of us. So what is it that we are feeding within us? Are we feeding our flesh and the desires of it? Are we seeking to feed ourselves with God's word? What comes after in verse 16 in Galatians there um, is verse 17 that says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And the same Greek word for desires that John uses here with the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes is the same word that Paul used to describe these desires. There's a desire for the spirit, that good epithumio, and there is a wrong desire, which is the epithumia as well. Is it after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, or after the things of the flesh? And it's almost like a war that is being waged within us. And Paul would talk about this taking place within himself in Romans chapter 7. If you want to turn there, you can. I have it in my notes. It's found in verse 18 through 25. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 20, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And verse 25 is the climax. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's that battle, you know, Paul's talking about the sin nature, battle with the Spirit and the contrasting of that going on. We still have this sin nature within us that can raise its ugly head at any point. Ever just be going along, you know, kind of minding your own business, and it would seem that just this thought pops into our minds, that may be this sinful thought, and we just like, wow, how did that get there? Okay, well, that's that flesh man within seeking to rise up against me. I need to check this and evaluate it with the Spirit. All the works of the flesh are still present in the lives of those who yield to the lust of the flesh. They're going to take a dominance over your life. John connects the desires of the flesh with the Word And when he says the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. The sensory organ of our eyes, if you think about it, kind of serves as the entry point. You know, where we take things in with our eyes and then it triggers kind of those sinful responses of our flesh if we are looking upon the wrong things. The desire of our flesh is there, and then the triggering happens when we look upon a temptation and then act upon it. And so many temptations do enter through the eyes. You know, things that that lure us in, that our flesh will respond to. And that's how the enemy works, is like dangling bait out in front of us to try to trap us into his evil snares. And this is the downfall of many Christians, that our eyes go to the things that we should not be looking at. And I know that some of you are expecting me to go here already, and that is in Genesis 3-6. As we see, it is what brought Eve and Adam down in the garden. The same methods that the enemy uses with us today are the same methods that he's been using since the beginning here. In Genesis 3-6, and More in, in regards to the eyes and how we take things in and then exciting that sin nature within us. Genesis 3, 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And it was before this that God had already told them that the fruit was forbidden for them. And yet Eve had set her eyes on that which was forbidden. She was enticed by what she saw. And so she ate of it. She took and ate of it. You can also see there that the pride of life appears in there as well, which we're going to get to in a moment when she, uh, when she desired to be wise, to be like God, that, that pride that welled up and, and triggered that sin response as well. Through the eyes, though, she was enticed by temptation and it controlled and it corrupted her from the inside. And we have another example that is also found in the life of David. And I know I'm, I'm kind of running a little bit long, but a lot of you know in Second Samuel, we have this this king, David, who we look up to and he's talked very fondly of in scriptures. But then there's a time where he sins, when he sins with Bathsheba And when he sees her out on her roof bathing, he looked upon her. And that look, that enticement, was attracted to him, and then it caused him to respond in sin. And he took her, and the result of that was that he sinned with her, and that he also killed, had her husband Uriah killed. I mean, he pretty much murdered him himself, but it just set him on this path towards destruction. The sin it ended up destroying David, and his his son was taken that he had with Bathsheba as a result of and the punishment for this sin. He set in front of his eyes that which was forbidden. Solomon, in his later years, we studied Proverbs together. But if you go to Ecclesiastes, he laments about some of the things that were in part of his sin nature. In Ecclesiastes two ten through eleven. He says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Right? It was just more toil. His sin just caused him to seek out more sin, and it was just like a wasting away of himself. In verse 11, he says, then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, talking about all these sinful things, and behold, All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He looked at all these things that he looked at and that cultivated desires within him that ruined his life. Jesus would say in his Sermon on the Mount, how many times I was amazed by how often he uses the, the human eye to illustrate something to us. In 528, he says there, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart took it into the eyes, looked in a lustful way, and therefore sinned in his heart against God. To look and then to have it take place in the heart. If you put your eyes on the wrong thing, there is now an open door into the heart. We like to think as Christians that we have this under control. You know. And I think of some of the movies that I, I continue to watch and the things I lay my eyes upon. It's all around us. It's so destructive. And when I hear... You know Some of the things hear and see, some of the things that we see on media and in social media and and even take entertainment in that myself, it just shows that that nature is still there. That corruption is still there. We need to be careful about what we bring before our eyes. Jesus goes on to say in that same verse that I read to you, or the next verse that I just read to you, Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, what are we to do with it? Tear it out, throw it away. That's right. Tear it out because it's ruining your life. What are you putting before you? I mean, it's a radical kind of amputation, but that's how we need to view sin, no matter how it appears in this world. It can appear as very alluring and almost kind of have a soft tone to it so that we might just ingest a little bit of it, but once he has us, the enemy, the hook is in. The hook is in and it just can continue to develop and move into further and greater sin. Um, have a few more passages here, but just one other that I want to share with you because I think it was David who said in Psalm 101.3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. There is... His declaration was, his proclamation, I'm not going to set anything before my eyes that is worthless. I have a guy that I work with that has that Bible verse up above his desk. And so I'm, I'm reminded of that. We must work to guard our eyes because what we are looking at is stimulating and cultivating desires on the inside. So we must be careful of what we set before our eyes. What is tempting you? What is luring to you? What it may be for one may not be for another. I mean, there are some that really are a clear sin. But, you know, if, if I look up on a pig, I might just see it as a pig, but Ray will want to buy it, so it might become sin for him. <laughs> so we have the desire of the flesh, and we have the desire of the eyes, and last but not least, we have the pride of life. And another translation says the boastful pride of life. Of life, Our pride can be so easily ignited. You know, remember Eve, that she desired to be wise. She wanted to elevate herself, uh, maybe a place of prominence to be like God. And how easy our pride uh, gets the best of us. Inflaming pride and arrogance to think that we are better like we have a, this ranking that we do in, inside our, our mind's eye, and, and it's a deadly force. It self-elevates. It uh, makes more of a, the self-importance. And what is driving the evil world system? It is. It is pride. I mean, you can see that a bigger, a bigger this, and a better that. I wrote in my notes here. Ask yourself why you want a bigger this or a bigger that. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world, is what John says. God is not the motivation behind it. The devil is using the system that he controls. It's all around us. We are sitting in a hornet's nest of materialism here in the United States that can easily gain access to the flesh. You're walking out, and you're going to step into it, I mean, it is all around us. And that is why John, he'll end his book and we'll spend more time there. But it almost seems like an odd statement, but it's like he comes full circle to this where he says, little children, guard yourself from idols because of the danger that is being discussed here. You have to put up a wall of defense. Guard your eyes, guard your heart's priorities, guard your soul and your life priorities. Nothing wrong with having things and being successful at work, but do not love the world. Live for another world, while you're in this world. Contrast is in verse 17, when John says, "And the world, it's passing away with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever." And the world is on a ticking time clock, and that time clock is going to end one day. There will be an end to the world system. There will be an end to the worldly things. Those things are passing away. God is going to put an end to it in his time, and Scripture promises that God is faithful to do just as he says, as he is predetermined to do. You read the book of Revelation that John also writes, and there there's a lot more detail in how the world is going to pass away, but that's not for this message. But he says that we can be assured that it will. And why do we put so much stock in the things that this world can give us when it's just going to pass away. It's just going to waste away. Jesus says, you know, lay up for yourself, not treasures on this earth, but treasures in in heaven. Treasures on this earth, they're subject to death and decay. Moth and rust can destroy and thieves can come in to steal them away. Don't put your value in those things. How much more importance and value should you place upon your eternity? In 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. What are you living for? That's what I ask myself. This world... Or the will of God, because John says, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For the believer who is actively pursuing the things of God, striving to do the Lord's will, I'm not saying that we're not going to fall and make mistakes and we live a sinless life. We would be going against the teaching of first John here. But abiding forever that that John talks about is the hope of the one who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when God saves us, He gives us eternal life and is only found in Jesus Christ. That is heaven for us. That is the promise of heaven for us. But there is, however, an eternity that exists for the one who has lived for everything that this world has to offer. They have not held back from satisfying their flesh and its sinful desires. They have taken things and put them before them and they've just ingested it like a kid at a a candy bar or something. They have not held back And unfortunately for them, the only heaven they will know is this world. Our souls are created for eternity, but the picture of eternity, as John lays it out for us, is black and white. It is darkness and it is light. Eternity is either heaven or hell, and I can't put it any clearer than that. We must live as those who are heaven-bound. For the believer, the only hell they will know is this earth. But in a sense, heaven must come to you, long before you go into eternity? Do you do, th- do the things of the world? Have you? Or do you love the things that God loves? Do you hate the things that God hates? What are you setting before your eyes? All these questions, a few of those I began with, I hope are now clear to us in terms of our response to them. Because the antidote to loving the world it's to love God, it's to love Christ, it's to love his word, his truth, it's to love his church, it's to love his kingdom, it's to love his people, it's to love and serve especially those who are in the body of Christ, those of us who are believers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, God, just that you have inspired John to write these things to us, this instruction and truth that I hope will take up residence in our heart, God, and and remind us of how important it is to put you in the rightful place of the throne room, our heart. And that is as Lord. And that you are ruler over our lives and that we submit to your lordship. And not let the have the things of this world have dominance over us. To take over us to the degree that we have moved them in a place of worship. That we've made them idols. And God, if that has been us and if we slipped into that where we've elevated the things above you and you have, in a sense, we've lowered you in in terms of our devotion. Just remind us of what we need to do. God, that we need to confess that before you. We need to repent of it and we need to put our devotion and our worship and our love towards you and that we would try to heed the instructions and live our lives as those who love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength, God. And we can't do that in our own effort. We need you and we need your Holy Spirit to help us in that. And for those that don't know you in the saving sense that God, maybe today something spoke to them that they would receive you as their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they would know what it is to have the help of the Holy Spirit to help them in loving you and in serving you and being obedient to you, God, and in serving and loving others. And I pray that as we go from here today, as we have continue in our fellowship, that we would show this love to those that uh, we just have conversations with, help us to speak life and love to others and and truth as well, God. And we pray these things and ask them in your son Jesus Christ's name, amen.